Thank you for joining us once again for another edition of What's Next, Living Longer, Better, Smarter. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Mary Furlong. Hi, Mary. Hi, Fred. Great to be here. Well, we have some very knowledgeable guests with us and a very important topic, the digital divide, you and your health. And this edition is made possible by VividPix. VividPix is all about making it simple to relive your memories. This includes scanning or downloading photos and documents to create your family history, fast, easy, and affordable software to improve these images, and various education to help people do more. With Mary and Fred, we look forward to sharing with you on an ongoing basis many new ways to live longer, better, smarter, and not let your memories fade. Mary, as we said, we have some people who are very much in the know joining us. We'll be talking to Gary Shapiro, president and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association, which represents the industry and hosts the big annual Consumer Electronics Show every year in January. And also with us is the Technology Strategy and Relationships Director for AARP, Michael Phillips. It's good to see you again, Michael. Michael, I know you've spent 20 years working on this issue and it's been 20 years we've been working together at AARP and you have experience that's so valuable. And this is an issue that I've been committed to my whole professional life. So now it's front and center. And there are many ways that you're looking at the digital divide. And of course, with COVID, that's made it even more important to look at the topic, as well as the topic of health equity. So help us get in the know here, Michael. Yeah, and Mary, thank Mary and Fred, thank you guys very much for uh, for having me here today. Um, you you know my passion around this topic area. We've been talking about it for for many years, and it's it's sort of changed and evolved um, as as our lives have changed and, and evolved. AARP has uh, increasingly been focused on technology and innovation, and I think will continue to increase because it underpins. Uh, everything that we do uh, as, as people these days. So if we're talking about our health, if we're talking about our financial security, if we're talking about uh, our connection to our friends, our family and information, um, more and more technology is enabling those connections and being left out of that is a, is, is a challenge. Um, I think some of the drivers and barriers have changed, Mary, since you uh, and, and, and all of the great work that you've done for decades uh, started following this uh, you know, many, many years before I even realized that there was a challenge. Um, so, you know, I think that working together uh, over the years has increased visibility. And now it's a, it's a new chapter. Well, th there are racial and economic issues when it comes to the, to the digital divide. Uh, during the pandemic, many of those who became so evident, really, when it came to children needing computers and Internet access, to be in school online and, and many parents needing access to work from home, depending on their employment circumstances. And then there are older adults. Now, many have been using and are familiar with computers and smartphones and tablets, but is there still a digital divide? What do we know? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a lot of people are, are asking, they're seeing facts and figures out there like, uh, like AARP's most recent data that shows that 85% of older adults have a smartphone and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe we've arrived, maybe, we're, maybe we're, we're, we're getting to the end of this. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you realize 
that even though connection is increasing and the, the ownership of tablets and, and smartphones and computers for older adults are reaching the same levels as, uh, as, as the majority, um, the, the usage of, of these devices and usage of the services that assist our lives um, still needs a little bit of, of, of a boost. Um, we've been tracking at AARP, we've been tracking five barriers to, uh, to, um, to, to that are creating the digital divide and barriers to digital inclusion. Um, their user experience and design, a lot of times uh, the, the technology is not necessarily designed inclusively. Uh, access and cost, our, our internet bills are increasing and the access is, doesn't uh, penetrate to everyone, not even uh, all kids, like you said, Fred. Um, trust and privacy is a, a big barrier. The awareness and interest that it, of, of what's, what's coming and what's here, uh, it, it happens so fast, products and services and solutions are coming online so quickly, it's hard for any of us to keep up and really know and be aware of what products are helping us live a better life. And of course, the, uh, the, the, the fifth barrier is one that we've been tracking for a long time and Mary has done a lot of work and, and AARP has done a lot of work in this over the years. And that's knowledge and training and education and making sure that everyone has access to learn digital skills that they need to stay up with what's latest. Right, there's an opportunity to really have reform on the government level around these topics and issues. And also we've seen a big uptick in people using telehealth and needing telehealth and also telefitness. Um, talk about the implications of where does the technology access and healthcare come together? Yeah, you know, I, I'm really excited about where health is going in the digital age. Uh, you know, and I, I see a lot of dig new digital apps, new sensors, predictive analytics, artificial intelligence being applied to age-old health, uh, health challenges. Um, but we have to make sure that everybody has access to, to that. It's not always just a cost, uh, a cost barrier either. There's lots of other barriers we have to be challenged with. Um, I know in, in, in Washington, we hear digital equity, digital inclusion, uh, I'm sorry, we hear health equity, health inclusion as, uh, as, as being an important issue around the government these days. We see a lot of technology challenges coming out, RFIs coming out, grants coming out uh, to, to tackle some of these health equity challenges. And they're focused on innovation and, and technology. But with all of the great innovation and technology that's coming out, we have to make sure that everyone um, has access to those uh, to, to those basic uh, those basic um, the basic devices, the basic hardware, the basic infrastructure, and the ba and the software tools, and how to. It's a whole life cycle that that is going to require an ecosystem approach. Um, I, I just you know one example. I think a great example earlier this year there was an emergency broadband. Uh, credit that was issued uh, for people, for low-income um, families to get online who have not been able to. And uh, I think it was interesting to see the ecosystem that evolved. You had the FCC administering the EBB benefit. You had the government, the Congress um, paying for it. You had uh, internet providers coming together to enable it. And then you had this uh, system of nonprofits and community organizations out there promoting the EBB benefit to get more people online and make sure that people were aware of it. I think for each of these barriers, there's going to be ecosystems that come together to address each one. 
Are there some new technologies, uh, Michael, that you, that you find most interesting or exciting even when it comes to telehealth? And how do we make sure as they as they do arrive that they're accessible to everyone? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a great question. I think the the number of people who have have used telehealth services um, and make, check my figure um, has it was it increased from uh, from about twenty eight percent to over forty percent just during COVID, and I'm sure it's even more than that now. That's older adults who have used telehealth. So everyone's becoming familiar with at least connecting to their medical profession. Now with the remote monitoring uh, tools coming on, the sensors, the, 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 uh, the, um, the uh, predictive analytics and other amazing therapeutical devices, um, it, it's a big ecosystem of, of, of solutions that are there for people. Um, th there's a lot of solutions uh, that, that, that I'm really excited about and very interested in. But I think the thing that I'm most interested in is watching how these new technologies get integrated into the workflow of clinicians. And I think that's really where the magic is going to be. There's lots of trackers, a lot of remote, remote devices, there's lots of um, data analytics tools and, and so forth coming on that help with a variety of different um, health concerns and wellness um, opportunities, but they have to get integrated into work, existing workflows and I think the integration into the clinical workflow and into the payer workflow and into the assisted living um, environment, that's really the, the, the magic. It's a big shift in the practice of medicine to really incorporate all of this, isn't it? It is, and, and you know, it, it's not, it, it makes it even more complicated because the technology is moving fast, the innovation cycles are happening quicker. Um, you know, what can you trust? What can you not trust? And then the data integration so that things aren't fragmented. I think following the health data, because it's the health data that's coming off of sensors and um, ADL monitors and, um, and, and, and fall detectors, that data is power. And how do we get that power in the hands of people who can help people get better? That's, go that's where the industry is going. And also managing the privacy as and seniors really do value their privacy. And, um, but we see an opportunity for public-private par partnerships. And at our Washington Innovation Summit, we have a lot of those stakeholders, that ecosystem that you talk about there. I, I think there's a magnitude of reform in technology and longevity today that there was 30 years ago when the internet was just coming to the table. I, I think you're right. And, you know, I know AARP is starting uh, a, a, an age tech collaborative to really, um, really, really put some thrust behind innovative, innovative startups, um, the payer, the, the, the healthcare models, the payer models, the provider models are, are, are taking note of what's going on. Government is taking note um, and, and the large tech organizations are all getting involved in health in different ways. And it's ecosystems, it's partnerships of, of, of that variety that's going to move the needle. I think that um, it's great that technologies are, are coming, um, coming together to provide solutions, but then those solutions, we have to figure out how we pay for them, how we deliver them, how we provide support for them, um, and how we can, you said, you mentioned health data, Mary, how can we help people to trust the data that's or, or the, the the health and the health technology and digital health that's coming their way. 
Any thoughts, Michael, about the, the need for more choices for people when it comes to broadband services? I mean, some people in rural areas have just about no choice. But uh, if, you, if we take a look at the picture, where, where I live, basically there's one internet service available to me unless I pay for Elon Musk's satellite system. Right. There, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of question marks. Yeah, and you know, if if you're faced with an eighty or ninety dollar internet monthly internet bill, and you know people are telling you that it's worth it, you should buy it, but can't really explain explain the value. Um, I, I think that's a challenge for people. Uh, we they, we definitely need to find new ways of uh, of of thinking about broadband. We're doing AARP has a lot of legislative and advocacy efforts underway and campaigns underway. At the state and the in the national level, to see how we can help um, help people in those rural communities find more solutions, and how how we can think about internet service a little bit different as healthcare becomes tied to access. I think it's going to change the conversation around uh, around broadband. Oh, I was going to say, and also with regard to caregiving and how people take care of elderly relatives from far away. And then the magic of, that Fred and I always talk about our grandchildren and you know how families connect is important too. I think one of the drivers for the change is because people want their children and grandchildren to have that access. And in time of COVID, that was the only highway we had to travel. So the very important insights and conversations and how exciting after all this time to still feel like we're moving forward and maybe the time is now we're at this tipping point and to have so many people engaged in the conversation and so many investors and entrepreneurs trying to create new products and services so it, thank you it does, it does seem like a tipping point you're absolutely right government seems very interested in health equity you know that that the age tech is a legitimate category of products, uh, thanks to thanks to all the years of, of hard work of people like you in the in the industry. And investments are coming um, are starting to starting to increase. So it does. I think that's a good way to put it. It is a tipping point now. Thank you, Michael. Gary Shapiro is about to mark. 40 years with the Consumer Technology Association. As president and CEO, he has led the trade association and it's pushed to provide the innovations that have changed all of our lives. He's the author of some best-selling books too, including Ninja Future, Secrets to Success in the New World of Innovation. Gary, we could go on and on and on with an introduction. I've had the pleasure of knowing you for many years and I'm very happy to be speaking with you again and congratulations also on being honored this fall in France by President Macron. Thank you. Thanks, Fred. It's an honor to be with you and with Mary. Well, the pandemic has had a dramatic and for many a tragic impact on everyday life. Technology and many of the companies the CTA represents has been so important in helping us to get by, whether it's been for work or school or staying in touch, communicating with each other. What we've been doing on Zoom and other platforms would not have been possible until very, very recently. Your thoughts about the, the role technology has played 
in, in helping us all get by over this last year and a half? Well, certainly it's been a, uh, a very difficult but important period for us in that we realize that technology can help save us in a very difficult situation. Not only did the uh, technology world step up and provide the means that many of us in white collar jobs could communicate and do things that we haven't done before, but also uh, it, it allowed us to stay connected with people around the world, um, try new approaches. It's also, in a sense, pushed us to a digital environment that even businesses had been slowly marching to, but now every company is a technology company. And certainly people realize the importance of broadband connectivity. And we've seen great things come out of it in many areas such as uh, telemedicine. And even how we got to the vaccine involved a lot of uses of technology. And that's really made a difference. You know, there, there are many, however, who've been left behind here on the wrong side of the digital divide. Areas where high-speed internet isn't available or where it's available maybe is too expensive or the devices to connect cost too much for, for many people. And others, sometimes older adults who are left behind because the technology seems too difficult to use. So what's your overall view of how significant a problem this is that we're facing? Well, I think one thing we've seen, especially with uh, children, is that having internet access is absolutely essential in terms of allowing equal, equality of opportunity. It doesn't matter your political party or really what it is. We've all seen it firsthand. We know, first of all, how difficult it is for children to learn, even with great internet access, but they have to have that basics just to survive, especially that uh, first year or so where, where most kids were remotely educated. So in my view, at least, the access to internet and to broadband is a, is a fundamental right. You know, certainly it's not as high as, as health and food, but it's above many other things that we are willing to give children, such as sports and things like that. So internet access is really important. And it's also important not only for, for kids, but it's important for other people, elder Americans and others that are alone for whatever reason, or people that a lot of people just didn't want to leave their homes. And by being connected to the internet, it's something which was really important and allowed them to stay connected with people and with information and even news about the virus and things like that. So we were the lifeline and we stepped up. I mean, if this had happened just 10 years ago, I don't think we would have been in the same position technologically or even public acceptance wise. But as we've gotten a great services, whether it's, it's how we're doing this today with a video uh, or, or whether it's chat services or the fact that the 5G and 4G have allowed more things to happen, um, we've seen major changes and that's important in that because we're humans and it's not the strongest that survived, it's not the fastest that survived, it's those that adapt the quickest to requote Charles Darwin. It's something that I believe in. And those that adjusted, the businesses especially, but also people, average citizens, were able to have that access to the internet. They're the ones that are doing better than those who don't. And we've seen the gap between the haves and the have nots. And it's, and it's good to see we're doing something about it as a country. You know, uh, Gary, I was part of the Clinton administration as a commissioner on libraries and the internet many years ago. And we were all advocating for more broadband use by older adults. There's a lot of parallels between older adults and young children in terms of access. But certainly when older adults were isolated at home, it became imperative that they have access to technology. So do you think this is a watershed moment where we'll see more government regulation and are the 
are corporations stepping up as well? Well, first of all, I just want to applaud your early focus on the older Americans. We, as an organization, we're a nonprofit association, but we created a foundation because we came up with some money that we didn't think we were going to get. And we spent a long time debating what we would do with that foundation money. And we decided with the passion of our one of our foremost leaders, who's still very much involved, the uh, founder of of Vox or AudioVox, John Shalom, is that older Americans and people with disabilities need access to technology. John Shalom was very focused on the, um, the fact that uh, there's a loneliness compo component of being isolated. So what we've done as a grant giving foundation is given a lot of resources to organizations that could close that gap, help people that are deprived of technology who are lonely and alone have access to technology. So that's been a constant discussion item around our water cooler and our volunteers for at least 10 years now. And that's very important. In terms of what can be done from a public policy perspective, there's been some um, certainly efforts over time. I mean, the Obama administration tried, they gave over a billion dollars to, to deploy broadband to those that don't have it. It honestly only got to a few thousand people. It wasn't really a good use of money. There's now in the um, infrastructure package, obviously there's big money for broadband. Uh, we hope that works. It's a lot of different ideas in there. Um, it's certainly uh, many different types of efforts and hopefully one of them will work. You know, the simplest thing to do in my view would be just to give vouchers to people that need broadband and that um, takes away a lot of the government. But look, we don't as an organization because we're concerned about the debt and deficit, we don't ask for money for our industry. We have not played in that area simply because of that fundamental principle we have that we think the federal debt is a big deal and therefore we don't ask for any government spending on our industry. So while we say broadband is great and I love it, I think our focus is really frankly, and if you wanna to get to broadband for the most people, the cheapest possible price, there has to be intense competition among different broadband providers. And that's the position we've had for over 25 years now. It's what we advocated the Federal Communications Commission and others is let's get competition out there. Let's have cable and free over there television to a certain sense, satellite, even uh, the pipeline that goes through with electric could provide broadband. And, and even like Wi-Fi in a sense is a certain way of, of competition for broadband. And then there's the public access, the fact that some things we didn't anticipate like the Starbucks and others having internet available and libraries, which definitely played a great role in internet availability to those that, um, of all different types of uh, walks of life. So there's, it's a healthy environment we believe when there's greater internet access, also when there's unlicensed spectrum. And now that we're coming to 5G, there, there's a lot of innovation in many different areas, but competition is our answer. And there's also government spectrum, which could be used for unlicensed use, meaning that it's not a bought or assigned by anyone. It just does great things like allow your telephone to work cordlessly or allows you to open your garage doors. So there's all sorts of new ways of using devices, which smart entrepreneurs in the US is the great leader in this area, uh, allowed to do it. Other things we've advocated, for example, and, and this goes back to my first book 12 years ago, is if you're going to, any government money is going to dig up some street or anything like that, that's when you lay broadband as well. Even if it's for a water pipe or a utility pipe, throw in the broadband and make sure we're not just digging up the streets and wasting a lot of money each time you do that. Um, and also, you know, there's some tax and tariff issues that, that affect the difference of how you can get quickly, you can get 5G. And also, frankly, there, there are industries like the broadcasters, which have been affected in their view by internet companies, and they've lost a lot of revenue. They're pushing this internet tax on unlicensed spectrum users. That's the kind of thing that does not excite us, and we definitely oppose. So we, we take a pretty principled approach 
on broadband deployment. We think broadband's a great thing, but we're not in a position of saying government, hey, this is where you should be spending the money on it. Well, some White House estimates uh, are that 30 million people live in unserved or underserved areas, 35% of rural Americas without broadband access. You mentioned 5G and, and satellite. Are those the technologies that could provide the easiest solutions to, the, to but, these issues? Yeah. You know, it gets real, obviously it gets much more difficult in the rural area where someone's like two or three miles away from the next home uh, to get broadband to them. And, and the most cost-effective way is clearly by satellite. Uh, and, and, you know, there's some up and down issues there, but in terms of a service, it's doable and it's, it's much more cost-effective than laying cable, whether it's in a telephone line or a fiber optics, you know, buried into the ground. Uh, that's, that's a good alternative. Microsoft has a very good proposal out there. They're, they're deploying other countries and some experiments in the United States where in rural areas, especially, you use the spectrum that the TV broadcasters are not using between the channels. And they have a it's, a, it's called a white space. And that's a great proposal that they've advocated and we've supported them on that at the FCC. It's something which is, makes a lot of sense. Um, in urban areas, not so much because they don't have that same problem. But look, anyone who's driven around the country lately knows you go into some dead zones with your phone and you could go for miles and miles and it's frustrating. And imagine living in that. And a lot of people do. And I think uh, as a nation, just the way no person should, should uh, die or get sick because of a lack of health care, I think basically if we really care about all Americans, we have to figure out a way to provide broadband. And that's why, you know, I, it's not an official position of ours, but I'd say we're vocally supportive of, of getting something through Congress, which focuses on solving the problem and getting different ways of doing it. And hopefully one of them will stick. But, but what we do advocate, because we do believe in it, is the whole competitiveness. Uh, the more out there, the more different broadband providers, the lower the price for all consumers. And that's what the free market does so well. And that's what we have benefited from. Some other countries may be doing a little bit better than us. They might have, uh, they definitely have lower prices. They not, don't definitely have faster speeds depending on where they are. A lot of it is geographic. You know, if you could lay, obviously fiber is one of the best, fastest, coolest ways, but a lot of people are mobile. And there's a lot of mobile technologies out there that provide broadband. Even we've worked with the TV broadcasters to get mobile TV to people. And that's in a sense, a form of broadband. They would argue they are broadband because they're going from many to, uh, from just one to many. Well, broadband is a kind of the opposite. It goes from uh, a few provider, many providers to many people. So there's different ways, there's different interests, there's different economic interests, but every person, I think, uh, over a certain age of four or five, certainly should be having access to broadband. Um, I notice your book's behind you, and I can see another book ahead of you, because certainly this year has, or past 20 months, been really a tipping point in terms of technology adoption. Tell us your book titles. I know some in the audience might want to read them. Well, that's so, so the first one is The Comeback, and it's focused on how the United States is about 12 or so years ago. It's focused on what the U.S. must do to compete with the Chinese. And it, was, it was definitely ahead of its time, but as a regular visitor to China, I saw it coming. And that's how I start the book. And that's what I talk about. And I talk about some of the things like broadband deployment is, is absolutely critical to our future and other things as well, things we must do as a nation. Um, the second book is uh, Ninja Innovation, and it, it's focused on how what companies are doing as innovators. I think personally, my view of the world is the United States is in a great position. We are a nation of innovators. It's our destiny in a sense. It's, it's who we come from, people who wanted a better life for the most part. 
It's our First Amendment that allows us to challenge our government, allows us to gather together. It's our focus on individual liberty. It's the fact that we're the most diverse country in the world, and that diversity promotes great ideas and our ability, to, frankly, to disagree with each other, usually in a respectful way, except maybe politically. But even in companies themselves, the more diverse the company, the better the company does. So all these things together, and the fact that we all think we could do things better, um, we have that attitude. And failure, and this is huge, having just spent uh, two weeks in Europe, failure here is a lesson. It's an education. It's not a death sentence for your career. So if you try to start a business and you don't succeed, uh, that's a good thing. And I talk a lot about those principles that, that, that we should keep focusing on to make us better and what great companies do. And, and the final book is uh, Ninja Future. And it's about all the new technologies that are coming, whether it's 5G, artificial intelligence, blockchain, all these different technologies that are out there, how we're doing as a country, how other, some other major countries are doing. And it basically talks about some of the things, even getting personal and personal advice as to how you as an individual could succeed in face of this extremely fast changing landscape. Um, all the books are different, and I hope you're right about the fourth. I'd love to talk to you later about some of the ideas you have, uh, because writing a book is a labor of love, but it's very gratifying, especially when you realize how you do change people's lives. I also have a follow-on question, because I know you two work very closely with AARP and AARP Innovation Labs. Tell us a little bit about some of the organizations that you're working with and what's ahead at CES this year. Well, thanks for asking. Uh, CES is our big trade show in Las Vegas every January. It's January 5th through 8th, and it's one of the fastest, uh, coolest, most wonderful places that, that innovators around the world get together, and they do business with each other. They do business with retailers, investors, uh, suppliers, and potential partners. And everything about technology now is about partnering. And that's why teamwork is important, and working with diverse groups is important. But innovation occurs when diverse ideas are put together and create something new and better. And in, in the world of technology now, you can't go it alone. You know, you're always partnering with someone and to get something good, to cross license patents, to distribute, to do things like that. What we're gonna see at um, CES is self-driving uh, vehicles, artificial intelligence, deployment of 5D technology. We have a record number of mobility products that car companies going to self-driving, electric vehicles, you know, everyone from the CEO of GM to every, almost every major car company to even helicopter companies and spaceship companies will be there. And of course, there's a focus on healthcare technology. That's huge given where we are. And it's been a growth area for us for years. But now we're seeing products that people are relying on for telemedicine, for remote diagnostics, for all sorts of things, and very innovative products using artificial intelligence and other things. We also have uh, a great connection with the content world, chief marketing officers, as well as um, the content providers, the platform providers, they get together at something called C-Space at a separate group of hotels. And they're focused on just getting together and seeing because the marketing world is changing so quickly with all these new platforms, new ways of reaching people, a lot of big issues. And we overlay it with the public policy focusing, you know, whether it's privacy or broadband deployment or things like that. And we've had a wonderful partnership with the ARP, given the fact that technology can improve the lives of, of all people, including people that are older, uh, and others, we, for example, we have a partnership with the Indi Indianapolis 500 producers. Uh, they, they were there with their self-driving cars. I was just there last weekend and they had a, a contest among universities around the world as who could program a standard self-driving car. And they had a race and they'll be doing all sorts of great stuff at CES. 
And of course, we'll see many, many, many other technologies. When you're over 1,300 or 1,400 exhibitors, you see a lot. And we have a startup area called Eureka Park, which was really focused on just as a matter of culture of our company, that we're always looking to help those with an idea, expose it to the potential partners, customers, buyers, investors, and one area of our show. And then we have all these country pavilions from around the world. So that's a, we're, we're thrilled to be back physically in Las Vegas because we believe in in-person events. Uh, we've, I've just come from events in Amsterdam, Paris, and New York, uh, and, and the joy of people being together and talking face-to-face -face and discovering things is really just so exciting. So that's what we're doing. If you want to see the most innovative products there, we have we had a record number of, of people applying for great new innovative awards. We had over 1,800 products submitted, and we have our award winners there. Um, and of course, we'll be with our foundation uh, pitch contest back in person. It is sponsored by the ARP Innovation Labs. And that focuses on, on smart home technologies. We, we have cross focus on safety and we are requiring everyone involved to be vaccinated. Is there still some type of a virtual component? I know you went fully virtual in a, miraculously last year. Yeah, it was, it was quite a change shifting a staff to produce a physical event to producing a purely digital event, but we're keeping the best elements of that. Some of the major speeches, the keynotes, the, the, the big power panels, things like that. And also what we learned from that, the most viable thing we did was extend the life of the show for people around the world by 30 days. And even journalists who come to others were so appreciative of the fact that, you know, trying to attend the, you know, the, the over a thousand speakers and all, all the thousands of exhibits is physically impossible, even digitally. But if you can come back when you get back uh, to your home, or if you can't go at all, accessing it through the web is, is something that we are offering to really expand the footprint and give our participants another opportunity. So anyone who exhibits at CES has a free opportunity to expand their reach globally. And we'll see how many of them take out that opportunity. Now, hopefully it's a temporary blip. But I need to ask you, I'm sure it's top of mind with uh, all of your members right now is the supply chain issue and, and how they're getting through even this holiday season. Any thoughts about that and how we can speed along <laughs> the, the supply chain to get things fixed? A blip sounds like it's really tiny. It's really a bigger than a blip. It's a real issue and it comes from so many, it's multifactorial, whether it's, it's just not the chips it's the fact that there's, you know, rolling blackouts in China for electricity purposes as they try for a while to cut back on their extreme cold usage. It also has to do with the fact that there's all sorts of shipping delays. We have a very inefficient West Coast port system under one union where they intentionally limit the number of people who can work there. Uh, we also, uh, you know, the, 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 there's only five shippers and they uh, basically and they control the market and their profits and prices have increased multifold. Um, there's a lot going on there. They actually have an antitrust exemption. I didn't know that till a few months ago, which is really weird because only unions, Major League Baseball and, and a few insurance people have an antitrust exemption. So they can pretty much do whatever they want. I know Congress is looking at changing that because it's definitely going to affect the holiday season in ways we can't anticipate. Uh, and I know it's, it's a huge amount of angst for retailers, for distributors for people in the distribution channel, obviously for suppliers from around the world. And it's affected even our ability to buy cars and things like that because of the chip issue layered on top of that. It doesn't appear to be a short-term problem, at least if you define short-term as just through this holiday season, it's gonna go on at least the first half of next year. And eventually in a, you know, two to three years when more 
semiconductor plants are built, uh, you're probably even out. But right now, we're, the chips are getting much more sophisticated. They do a lot of things that, you know, when you layer on artificial intelligence and that, we are going to have smart cars, smart robots, artificial intelligence. We're going to have be safer. We're going to be healthier. And we're going to be better connected, educated. And that's in the, it's coming from amazing uses of technology. And technology does so much good. You know, we could focus on a couple of companies that have pushed the envelope of privacy and marketing, things like that. But the reality is, we have 1,500 corporate members at CTA, and every one of them is trying to make lives better for people around the world. And I think we're doing it. We're doing it, as you talked about earlier with COVID, and we're doing it in other ways. And just you could take any category from self-driving to health technology to whatever you want, to how drones are used to get medicine to rural areas now around the world. There's so many good things happening that are making our lives better, healthier, safer. So I'm pretty happy with what I do. I look forward to seeing any of you and your viewers at CES. Uh, you go to our website, csweb.tech or ces.web.cs.tech, not web.tech. That was the old one. Ces.tech. See, I, I know everything but the most basic thing I should know, which is our website, ces.tech, T E C H. And you can find out more about CES. Well, Mary, the CTA's involvement in, in these issues that Gary's highlighting, and, and from the digital divide to technology to help older adults live independently for longer has really been so important. So inspiring. And uh, I want to read the books. I want to I want to come to CES. I love the idea of having it up for 30 days after. We are in a hybrid world, I think, in the future. And congratulations on the leadership and the talent and bringing people together at this important time. It's, it's changing the workforce. It's changing healthcare. It's changing the lives of young people, older people around the world. And I love your enthusiasm. I want to see those helicopters. <laughs> uh, Fred, we'll be there to cover it one way or the other, right? Uh, we will. Thank you, Mary, for those kind words. And trust Fred. He's a veteran. He knows how to get around CS. He knows how to wear comfortable shoes, drink plenty of water, you know, avoid alcohol, all those other things. So we look forward to seeing both of you there. And I look forward to seeing you in Las Vegas. Mary, the, the digital divide is such an important issue affecting young and old schools, businesses, healthcare. It's great to see organizations like the AARP and the Consumer Technology Association making it such a priority. Yes, and they'll both be a part of next month's Washington Innovation Summit on December 1st and 2nd, which will be virtual again this year, really designed for anyone interested in longevity, aging, and the government regulation that's taking place around those issues. This was a very dynamic session today, uh, Fred. Some power players. And there's more information about the summit at maryfurlong.com. That's also where you can find us and all of our podcasts. We want to thank Michael Phillips and Gary Shapiro for being with us. Thank you also to our sponsor, Vivid Picks. Find them at vivid-picks.com. And thank you for listening or watching.